And so with that, let's jump into Exodus chapter 2. We did a whole chapter last week. We're going to do a whole chapter again this week. It's been a while since I've done back-to-back weeks where we made it through a whole chapter in one week. So this is sort of a landmark for me. I can already hear the people saying, the teaching's getting shallow, Jeff. I can tell a whole chapter at a time you sold out. So (laughs) let's jump in. Last week we began our study in the incredible book of Exodus And our main story picks up around 350 years after Jacob and his sons and their families moved to Egypt to be with Joseph, who was prime minister of the country of Egypt at the time. Now, more than three centuries have passed since Joseph died, and a pharaoh arises who does not know or does not care about Egypt's special relationship with Israel. He doesn't care that God is clearly supernaturally blessing Israel. All he sees is a people within Egypt who don't even consider themselves to be Egyptian. He sees that they've acquired incredible wealth and positions of power and have grown over a million and a half strong. They are a nation within the nation of Egypt. And this Pharaoh realizes that if these Hebrews ever sided with an enemy of Egypt, they would be able to take over Egypt from the inside. So he puts the Jewish men into bondage as state slaves and he commands the Hebrew midwives to abort any Jewish males that are identified during pregnancies. But those Hebrew midwives feared God and courageously refused to participate in genocide. And we're told that because they chose to honor the Lord above Pharaoh, the Lord gave them families of their own. And I forgot to mention it last week, but if you were a midwife at that time, it would be because you were barren, because you couldn't have children of your own. So it was a miraculous blessing. It wasn't like God just blessed their dating life. It was a genuine miracle when the Lord gave the Hebrew midwives their own children. Well, Pharaoh then decided to up the ante by commanding all of his citizens to kill any Hebrew male infant found by throwing them into the river. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter two today in which we will meet the deliverer God is going to send to his people. The one who will be a type, a model of Jesus in our story, Moses. So let's jump in, chapter two, verse one. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Elsewhere in scripture we learn that the man's name was Amram and the woman's name was Jochebed. Verse two. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament tells us that like the Hebrew midwives, Moses' parents feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they could tell there was something different. There was something special about their baby. It says in Hebrews 11, I think I put it on your outlines, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. And so it's interesting because Hebrews gives credit to both parents, whereas Exodus gives credit to just the mother, Jochebed. I think that what's most likely is that the dad didn't really perceive much, as dads generally don't, but he trusted his wife's spiritual instincts. It's not hard at all when you imagine men and women to imagine mom holding this newborn baby and saying, you know, Amram, there's just, 
there's just something about him. Can you perceive it? Can you see it? And Amram going, nope, this looks like a baby to me. But I mean, if, if you want to do something here, I'm, I'm down with whatever you want to do. That sounds good to me. I'll believe you. I'll trust you. That's how it would go 99.99% of the time in any of our marriages with our kids and our wives. Verse 3 But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now I heard some pastors claim that that God must have clearly told Jochebed to do this because after all, what mother would put their baby in the river? And I think that comes from the perception that many of us have if you grew up in the church. You sort of have this image in your head of, you know, she she makes this little bassinet for the baby and then puts it in the river and just sort of like pushes it off into the current and is like, it's in your hands now, God. That's sort of the picture you get if you grow up in the church. But in reality, this is what any intelligent and caring mother would have done in the same situation. So think about this with me. You have a baby boy on your hands and there is a death sentence in place against all baby boys. You keep him in your home for three months but eventually you realize that that you just can't anymore. Someone is going to hear this baby crying. It's getting too dangerous. You you can feed this child when he's uh, awake but when he's sleeping or just they're doing his thing. You've got to find somewhere else to hide him because this is getting too risky. So what do you do? Well, we know that the Hebrews were living in the area of the Nile Delta, the area known as Goshen, and there were marshes everywhere. This is the picture you need to get. The way the Nile River goes is it sort of runs up north and then it turns into a fan, and that fan is called the Nile Delta. So it's not one big mighty river. It becomes sort of this very fertile marshland. It's great for farming. That was the agricultural area of Egypt, but there's marshes and, and reeds all over the place, and that's where they were living. That's where they were living. So to say that she just put him in the river and pushed him off isn't accurate. That's not what happened. It it says that she made an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch. So she made a, a waterproof, covered, protective, lined, floating container to keep her baby safe. And she didn't put it in the river and push it off. It says she put it in the reeds by the river bank. She put it in the reeds specifically so that it wouldn't float down rivers, so it could be there. And then when it was feeding time, she could go and get him and feed him, but keep him there away from people to keep him safe so that he wouldn't be in the home. She was doing everything she could to protect him and keep him safe while continuing to raise him. That was her plan. Her plan was not put him in the river and say, well, God, it's in your hands now. That's not at all what happened. And if you were in the same situation, this is what you would have done as well. If you were trying to keep your child alive, there wasn't really any other option. And so what Jacobet did was in reality the obvious thing that you would do in this situation. The original Hebrew is really intentional about the use of the word ark. The original Hebrew word there doesn't mean basket. It means ark. And the only other place in the Bible that that word is used is in reference to the Ark of Noah in Genesis. And and what made it an ark as opposed to a basket? Well, even though it was made of bulrushes instead of gopher wood, like the Ark of Noah, it was coated with pitch on the outside to make it waterproof. So God used an ark to save his people in Noah's day, and God is going to use an ark to save his people in Moses' day as well, because that's where their deliverer 
is being kept safe right now. And I'm sure there's a ton more there in that parallel you can dig into in your own studies if you want to think about that. Verse 4, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Moses has an older sister and she's nosy like every older sister is. And so she's just watching to see what's gonna happen. Is mom's plan gonna work out? Is a crocodile gonna eat my brother? What's gonna happen here? Verse five, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. So what likely happens is Pharaoh's daughter's there, she's bathing in the river with her attendants, her maidservants, and she, she likely hears baby Moses crying. She sent her maid to get it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. His sister says, oh, I, I gotta do something here. Then his sister springs into action, runs up, says to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you, your highness, from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? Moses' older sister says, oh, oh, your highness, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. She goes and gets mom, Jochebed. But Pharaoh's daughter obviously doesn't know any of this. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to Jochebed, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable story and turn of events. So, so Jochebed ends up having her child discovered by the Egyptians, but it's by Pharaoh's daughter who takes compassion on him and puts him under royal protection and now has Moses' own mother raise the child and she pays him to do it. And so this would have continued for several years until Moses was weaned. Somewhere between the ages of two and five is probably about as close as we can get. An incredible turn of events. Verse 10, and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So as a young child, Moses is adopted into the Egyptian royal family. And incredibly, this is what God is doing here. You have the one who is going to deliver Israel the one who is going to defy Egypt and confront Egypt is going to be raised and protected in the very household of the Pharaoh who is at that time trying to eradicate the Jews. He's trying to kill every Jewish male and the one that he can't get to is the one that God has destined to deliver them. It's amazing. So she, Pharaoh's daughter, called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. And I don't wanna to spend too much time on this because it's really Bible nerd trivia, but I just want you to be aware of the fact that the name Moses doesn't actually mean drawn out or drawn out of the water or anything like that. The Egyptian word that Pharaoh's daughter used to name him sounds a lot like the Hebrew word, but one word sounding like another word in another language doesn't mean anything. It sounds similar to the Hebrew word that means drawn out, but they're not the same word or anything close in terms of meaning. The Egyptian word that she names him, mess, means child or son, or son of. And so the explanation that makes the most sense is that pretty much all of us for our whole lives have actually just been reading the sentence 
wrong. There's not a wrong word in there. We've just been putting the emphasis on the wrong part of the sentence. When Pharaoh's daughter says that she's calling him Moses because she drew him out of the water, she's not explaining the meaning of the name Moses. She's saying something more along the lines of, I'm calling him my child, my son, because I've drawn him out of the water and he now belongs to me, if you're tracking with me. So attempts to sort of link the name Moses to any Egyptian words that mean drawn out of the water are, are a leap that historians and linguists tell us is just kind of too far. It doesn't really add up. It's not a big deal, but I just thought I'd clear it up while we're here so that you can dominate Bible trivia night somewhere down the line. And there's one other point while, while we're stationed here at Camp Bible Nerd that I want you to be aware of. And it's another subject where I'm just gonna give you the bottom line real quick. We're not gonna do a massive sidebar here. If you want more, you can Google the article that I mentioned on your outlines. Most of you are just gonna look at that title and you're like, I'm never gonna read an article with a title like that. Among some atheists and some online communities, you'll hear something along the lines of, well, the Moses birth story is copied from the myth of Horus or Moses is a copy of the Sargon birth legend, Sargon the Great. And just a few weeks ago, we addressed a similar question regarding Jesus. We looked at the accusation that Jesus is a copy of older gods and their mythologies. And the things we learned in that message apply as well to the birth story of Moses. When you get into the details of the stories and actually compare them, when you look at the primary source material, that is the oldest copies of the narratives that we have and how old they each are, these accusations simply don't hold water. Sargon and Horus, the oldest copies we have of those stories date to around 1000 BC and we have ones relating to the birth of Moses that predate that by centuries. So it doesn't even make any sense because we have far older records of Moses' birth story than we do of Horus or Sargon. And then when you get into the details, the details end up being different. They're only similar on the surface. In reality, they're very, very different. So just don't take it seriously if you see anyone make that accusation. And whenever you find something random on the internet like this, it's just good to remember that there are people who've devoted their entire lives to studying this, Christians and non-Christians alike. This is what they've done with their whole life. And so someone who reads one book and says, I've made an amazing discovery, hasn't. They just haven't unless they've written a paper on it and it's been peer reviewed and they've interacted with all the data that the experts have accumulated and addressed it, you don't need to feel like you need to take anything seriously because they're kind of a hack. They're like a person who reads a bad translation of the Bible, misinterprets one word and believes they've discovered a conspiracy in scripture. You don't need to take them seriously because they haven't even bothered to check their work against anybody else's. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen the Apostle is addressing the Jewish religious council in Jerusalem in his famous speech, his famous testimony that goes over the whole history of Israel. And in there, he speaks about Moses. And it's interesting because he tells us a bunch of little details that we don't actually get in the Old Testament Exodus account. There are details in the New Testament that we don't have in the Old Testament because they were passed down through the traditions of the scribes and the rabbis and men of the great council and things like that. For example, in Acts chapter seven, we're told that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. What that means is that from the moment Moses went into the royal palace in Egypt, he was raised like a prince. 
He was trained and schooled by the best tutors and teachers in the world in all kinds of areas of study. We're talking physical combat, military strategy, philosophy, religion, science, chemistry, leadership, history, botany, music, anything you can think of. And the implication of the statement that he was mighty in deeds, which is also mentioned in Acts 7, is that Moses had been out to battle multiple times and was an accomplished military commander during his adult life as an Egyptian with the armies of Egypt. It's a very interesting thing when you realize we know almost nothing about Moses' life from about the age of five to 40, but he's Egyptian royalty during this time. He's learning from the best minds and teachers in the world. He's an accomplished military leader. This is a legit Renaissance man. He's the real deal. Hebrews 11 also tells us some more very interesting things about Moses. This is on your outline. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So here's the idea, when Moses became of age, what that means is when he entered the age of Egyptian manhood, which would have been at some point in his teens, he was, the plan was for him to be put on a track that would prepare him to become the next Pharaoh. That's what this is saying. The Jewish Roman historian Josephus attests to this in his writings as well, so it was Jewish tradition to hold this belief. Indeed, and instead, Moses chose to say, I'm a Hebrew, I'm not an Egyptian. And by doing that, Moses knowingly made a choice to identify himself with the people of God and forsake the opportunity to rule what was the most powerful kingdom on the earth at that time. If this was the case, and it seems to be saying it was, this obviously would have angered and insulted Moses' adopted mother and the reigning Pharaoh which probably would have resulted in what this passage describes as affliction for Moses, most likely in the form of being treated as the black sheep of the family. I think it's a, a reasonable and intriguing possibility that's supported by scripture, and it would mean that Moses was aware of his Jewish ethnicity, at least by the time he was 20, because by the time he reached the age of manhood, Instead of being put on this track to become Pharaoh, he chose to say, I'm, I'm not gonna do that because I'm not actually Pharaoh's daughter, I'm a Hebrew. So he had an awareness from a relatively young age that he was a Hebrew, he was not an Egyptian, and that he had been adopted and that his people were in slavery. He knew this most of his life. It also seems to imply that Moses was aware of God in some way. Even though he had been raised with Egyptian gods in a pluralistic society, and he was aware that in choosing his allegiance, he was choosing between the kingdom of God and Egypt, the kingdom of the world. He was aware that's what he was doing. So with that in mind now, we go back to Exodus 2 and verse 11 where it says, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, Acts 7 will tell us that Moses is 40 years old now at this point, that he went out to his brethren, he went out to the Hebrew people and looked at their burdens. He saw that they were slaves. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, he looked all around, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
Moses looked all around to see if anyone was watching, but Moses didn't look up. He didn't look to the Lord. He didn't ask God what he should do. He assessed the situation with his own eyes, his own perspective, and his limited insight, and he acted. And he made a really, really bad decision. And I'm not referring to the really dumb decision to bury a body in sand, where the wind is obviously gonna blow it away in just a few days. But perhaps you can relate. You know, so often we survey a situation, we come to a conclusion in our own mind, we, we formulate a plan, and then we act. All as though we know everything there is to know. As though we have all of the information, all of the insight that we need when we know that we really don't. We can't see the future, but we don't know what's going on in people's hearts. We don't know what people's motivations are. And no matter how mature we are, we're still prone to things like bias, pettiness, and thinking with our emotions. I don't know about you, but I've stuck my foot in my mouth more than a few times by assuming I knew everything about a situation when I didn't. You ever done that? Ever prepared an entire monologue and then you finish and the person shares a detail which makes your whole monologue pointless? And you're like, oh, it would have been good to know that before. Maybe I shouldn't have just assumed I knew everything about the situation. But the good news is that James 1.5, we say it all the time around here, James 1.5, on your outlines it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's all of us, just to be clear, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. So if we remember that we don't know everything and we ask the Lord for help, he will bless us with wisdom. But Jeff, sometimes I've asked the Lord what to do and he hasn't told me. What does James 1.5 say? It says, if you ask the Lord for wisdom, he'll give you wisdom. It doesn't say he will tell you what to do. It means that he will be present in your thinking. Wisdom means that the Lord will supernaturally empower you to think with greater clarity and with greater insight. When you've asked the Lord for wisdom and continue asking him for wisdom, it means he's gonna be present in your thinking and you can be confident that your decision making is sound because you know the Lord is involved in your decision making. So make a note of this, the wise man or woman asks the Lord for wisdom before making major decisions. The man or woman asks the Lord for wisdom before making decisions. And this really is a key. You might pray for wisdom, you might pray faithfully for wisdom, and you might not feel any different when you're thinking about a situation. But you need to believe by faith that what the word of God says is true, that God is giving you wisdom in the way that you are thinking. He is causing you to think with the mind of Christ. He is causing you to be sober-minded. And even though you think these are your thoughts, remember that by faith, God is present in your thinking, in your thoughts. He's given you the mind of Christ so that you can think under the inspiration of God. That's what he's doing. So have faith in that. Verse 13, and when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? So, so imagine the scene here. Moses was probably actually feeling pretty good about himself at this point. He's feeling like a, a warrior hero who has been sent to help his people. He probably thinks, wow, you know, 
the Lord arranged this whole thing as a test, you know, the Egyptian beating the Hebrew guy, and, and I passed. I stepped up to the plate, and I'm ready. I'm ready for this. I'm ready to be the deliverer my people need. God's going to use me to free them. How do I know that he was probably thinking this? Because again, Acts chapter 7 tells us, it's on your outlines, that Moses, quote, supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. So understand this, because the way you think about this whole Egypt story and the life of Moses might be changing, that Moses didn't come to an awareness that he was called to deliver his people when he encounters God later on at the burning bush. Acts chapter 7, the speech of Stephen, tells us that by this point in his life, Moses already knew that he had been called to be the deliverer of Israel. He knew already that was the plan. And like many of us, he thought that God had left all the details up to him. So he was like, I'm going to step up to the plate. There's an Egyptian messing with the people I'm sent to deliver. Obviously, I'm meant to take that guy out. Job done. Oh, here's two guys arguing. Oh, the Lord is just going before me, and now I'll step in and, and be mediator, and they'll welcome me as the deliverer and hero. The script is writing itself. How good is God? But in reality, God had a plan that included all the details. And Moses was about to find out that his version of the plan was way, way off. Very different to the Lord's. He'd actually made a giant mess of things. So Moses shows up the next day after he's murdered the Egyptian taskmaster. He's expecting to be welcomed as his people. He sees the two men arguing, thinks, man, this is a situation the Lord's created for me. Brothers, brothers, tries to break up the situation and play peacemaker. But the guy he talks to, the guy he confronts, says this to him in verse 14. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Can you imagine the panic that Moses would have felt in this moment as he realizes what he thought was a secret was seemingly known by all the Hebrews? We won't take time to share stories because none of you would, but have you ever had a moment in your life when something you thought was a secret suddenly came out and there, there was just no way to spin it? There's no way to hide it? He's caught. Everyone saw him do it, apparently. And everyone knows that he's murdered an Egyptian. He's committed homicide. So Moses is in a situation here. The fact that he's a member of the royal family is not going to get him out of this problem. Because Egyptian society had capital punishment. And if you murdered someone, you would get the death penalty. No exceptions. No exceptions. And before we get to what happened next... You just need to be aware of the little parallel here between Jesus and Moses in that Moses is rejected by his own people, his own people. They don't welcome him as their deliverer, even though he's just demonstrated he's willing to stand on their side, take up their cause and fight for them. Instead, they reject Moses and say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You might recall that when Jesus was preaching in the temple in Jerusalem, preaching to his people, the Jews, to whom he had been sent as the Messiah, deliverer, savior, the religious leaders confronted him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? The exact same reaction that they gave to Moses. There's a pattern there, parallels beginning to emerge. Well, Moses' secret is out and he's got a real problem on his hands. Then we read, so Moses feared and said, well, surely this thing is known. 
When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. Pharaoh had no choice. He was bound by the law of the land and people would have been watching to see what he was going to do. There was no way to cover this up. So Pharaoh's pride was on the line and I'm sure there was sentiment in the palace and among the leading officials of the land that the rebellious adopted son in the royal family had had finally gone too far. He's finally completely out of control. He's not just a a petulant man who who longs for his people as an act of rebellion. He's, He's finally crossed the line here. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Midian referred to a territory on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula that was a long, long way from Egypt. It was controlled by five semi-nomadic tribes that were collectively known as the Midianites. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. So there's this guy. He's the high priest of Midian. We don't know what religion he was a priest of. Historians speculate it could be any number of pagan deities, including Baal or Ashtaroth, or possibly even a version of Yahweh, the the Jewish Hebrew God that got distorted across the centuries because remember that Midian was the son of Abraham and Keturah way back in the day, so they could have still been doing some form of Yahweh worship. But the only thing we know for sure is that this guy and his daughters were Gentile, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Then we read, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And so this is foreshadowing. This is literally foreshadowing Moses' role as a deliverer. And we're beginning to see here that God had just wired Moses with a bent for justice and compassion towards the oppressed. He can't seem to help himself from wanting to right the wrongs that he witnesses. First with the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Hebrew, then with the two Hebrews who are arguing, and then here with the bullying shepherds. He just can't help himself from stepping in. Verse 18, when they, the seven daughters, came to Ruel, their father, he said, how is it that you've come so soon today? So so normally they'd be hassled by these shepherds and have to wait, but because Moses was there to get rid of the bullies, they were able to get everything done early. And the dad says, why are you home so soon? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. So Ruel says, he says, ladies, can't you take a hint? What does a guy need to do to get your attention? No wonder you're all still single. Go and get this man. Go find him. Bring him back here. Verse 21, then Moses was content to live with the man. Well, he had fled Egypt but was now being offered lodging in the home of a man who had seven single and seemingly good-looking daughters. So no wonder Moses is content to live with the man. He was like, I like these odds. This is a good situation. And Moses wasn't phased at all by living with the priest of Midian because, again, he'd been raised in the Egyptian palace. He'd been taught about Egyptian gods. He had lived his whole life in a pluralistic society and family, even though he personally served Yahweh. But it was interesting to me. I was trying to think about this as I was preparing this, and and I looked at, I'm not exaggerating, 20 different preachers and commentaries on this because I was just trying to think, is nobody else thinking it's weird that God is going to have Moses live for what's going to be a long time 
with this high priest who's not a, a Hebrew high priest. He's not a priest of Yahweh. He's some other God or some other distorted form of Yahweh. And, and God's going to have Moses, the deliverer of his people, live with this guy. And I was thinking, what, what's going on with this? Well, later on in the Exodus story, Ruel, who's going to later be known as Jethro, later on, much later on, he's going to become a believer. And so here's what's happening. The Lord is not only working in the life of Moses. He's not only working on the situation of the Hebrews who are in slavery. God is also doing something in the life of Ruel. The Lord looked at him and recognized that he was a man who would follow him if he was put in the right circumstances, if he was reached the right way. And so the Lord set about creating those circumstances in the life of Ruel. It's another wonderful example of the Lord bringing Gentiles and pagans into his story, even all the way back in the book of Exodus. And he does it because the Lord is always, to this day, he is always and always has been looking for people anywhere who will follow him if they are shown the truth. And he will intervene supernaturally when he finds one. And so the Lord has this guy, just think about this from the perspective of Ruel. He has this guy, Moses, literally just show up one day and move into his house. And Moses is the guy who's going to tell Ruel about the Lord over the coming years. It's very cool to see how the Lord is working on all these different things at the same time, always. And he, we read, that's Ruel, gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. So Moses, who's a model of Jesus, the deliverer, takes a Gentile bride. The Lord Jesus has also taken a bride who's Gentile, the church, you and I. Verse 22, and she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, which means stranger there. For he said, I have been a stranger or a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses learned to be content and he learned how to be humble in Midian. There's no grand plans to make, no strategy to form. There's just sheep to take care of and, and normal life, normal life to live. And so Moses learned to become content and humble in the wilderness and he learned one of the keys to contentment. One of the keys to contentment, it's this. It's understanding that you and I are strangers on the earth. We're sojourners here. We're just passing through. This is not our real home. And when we understand this, we stop expecting this to be heaven. And we stop becoming crushed and devastated when things don't all come together and work out perfectly in this life. Because we understand it's not all supposed to come together down here. This isn't heaven, this isn't home, this isn't the final destination for you and I. So write this down. One of the keys to contentment is understanding that heaven is our home. One of the keys to contentment is understanding that heaven is our home. You know, anytime a believer loses faith or leaves the church or, or claims that they've fallen away from their relationship with the Lord because something didn't happen the way they thought it should in this life, it's always an indicator that something in them, whether they realize it or not, something in them had the expectation that everything's supposed to work out in this life. Something in them expected that because I'm a Christian, my marriage isn't ever supposed to have trouble. Everything's supposed, because I'm a Christian, I'm never supposed to lose my job. 
Because I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm never supposed to have a financial challenge or deal with a disease or a sickness. Something in them had that belief. They picked that up somewhere along the way. And when that obviously didn't happen, they felt like God didn't keep his part of the deal. And that's one of the reasons to be in the word so that we actually understand what the deal is that the Lord is offering us. And the deal the Lord is offering us is saying, listen, earth and this life are broken. They're broken. And one day, I'm gonna fix things and then I'm gonna make something even better. And so if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me with your life, I'm gonna get you to that future place where everything is made right, where everything is perfect. That's the deal. That's the hope. Not that this life becomes perfect. That's why we have hope when this life is not perfect. It's the secret to contentment, understanding, man, we are just passing through, doing our best to love the Lord and serve the Lord on this journey, but this is not where we're going. We're going somewhere so much better. And that's what we're looking to. That's what we're longing for. That's what Moses was thinking about when he said, I don't want to be Pharaoh. I've got different goals for my life. I'm not trying to get to the throne of Egypt. I'm trying to get before the throne of heaven. That's where I want to go. That's what I'm living for. And so God had a plan to free his people. Moses knew that God had called him to be Israel's deliverer. So really think about this. So Moses had started working on a plan. He had a plan to deliver his people. But God had to step in and say, listen, Moses, you're just going to mess up everything if you try to be God in this situation. So I'm going to let you figure this out on your own. And by this, I mean I'm going to let you figure out that you're just going to mess everything up if you try and come up with a plan. Let me be God, Moses. Let me come up with the plan. I'm going to stick you on the bench for a while because we've got to do some leadership development in your life. Take a seat. And so here's the man who was once the heir to the throne of the mightiest empire in the world. He thinks his next step, his next phase of life is becoming the deliverer of Israel with the supernatural of power of God as his backing. But now here he is taking care of sheep in the wilderness, in exile, under essentially a false identity, basically. And this is not going to be a quick lesson. It's not a leadership retreat for a week or two. Moses is going to be out there in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. 40 years before God eventually says, okay, so let's get working on that Egypt project again. 40 years. You see, I know that like me, you're impatient when you find yourself in a wilderness season. I know that like me, you get frustrated when you can see what needs to be done. But when you try to do it, things just seem to get worse. And all God seems to be saying is, be still. Leave it alone. Leave it to me. Go about your daily life. Go to work. Make meals. Take care of the kids. And I know in those situations you get frustrated and like me, you think, well, like, what's going on? What in the world is going on? And what you realize is that most of the time in those situations, God is working on you. He's working on me in, in ways that we cannot even perceive. And the reason we cannot perceive that God is working on us is because he's working on us so slowly. 
He's working on us one little bit at a time. Now why is he doing that? It's because the issues that he's working on are our deepest issues. So they're so deeply ingrained in us that the work can only be done slowly and over time. Because if you've ever realized in your life, have you ever come to the point in your life where you've suddenly realized that you have a major issue? Or that you have a deep-rooted issue and you're like, oh man, like this is really a problem and it goes back as far in my life as I can remember. This goes back to my childhood. This is something that is in my makeup that is a, a real issue that I have. What I want you to think about is how long it took you in life. How old were you? How many years passed before you even recognized that there was an issue? Decades for some of this stuff. Before you even recognized that there was an issue. Never mind working on the issue. So sometimes we're in these situations and we think, God, God, it feels like you're not doing anything. But he is, but he's just working on it so slowly and gradually because the work is so deep. Sometimes we don't even know that the issue is there. 40 years from now, Moses will not be the same person he was when he fled Egypt. And I'm sure that during those 40 years, Moses wasn't getting up every day saying, listen, it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, but I don't mind because I can feel the Lord radically working on me today. I don't think that's how his daily life was going. But the Lord was, incrementally, day by day. And the Lord often works the same way in our lives. So so write this down. When God works on our deepest issues, it usually takes a significant amount of time. When God works on our deepest issues, it usually takes a significant amount of time. Sometimes our issues are brought on by bad decisions and sometimes we've spent years making bad decisions. Years or decades. And then we think, man, listen, it's been months and this thing still isn't fixed. And we're frustrated that We've made some bad decisions or we've sown some bad seed for years or decades that it isn't instantly fixed. And I really believe that the Lord is always working as fast as is possible in our lives. As fast as is possible. But sometimes we're resistant. Sometimes we're slow to understand. But the Lord has no interest in making us like Jesus slowly. He's doing it as quick as he can. It's just that sometimes we're not that easy to work with. We don't embrace the process sometimes. Can you imagine how Moses felt when he was in the wilderness? And think about this. In the back of his mind the whole time is the knowledge that his people are still suffering in Egypt. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And he has the knowledge that he's seemingly blown his chance to help. At least he had some influence. He was a member of the royal family. Now he's on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. Can't do anything about it. And his people are still in bondage. He must have felt guilty. He must have felt heartbroken. It's the frustration that we feel when we look at a situation and we can see what needs to be done, but the Lord seems to be working on on us instead. And we're thinking, "But, but God, what about them? What about that situation? They're they're hurting now. They need help now. So whatever you need to do in me in order to make me able to help them, would you you just hurry up and get it done in me so that they can get the help they need? God's got a plan for them. 
God's got a plan for you. And when you're in that place of hurting, because you can see that person or those people or that family that needs help, but the Lord doesn't seem to be opening the door for you to help. Here's what you need to remember. You don't love them more than the Lord does. Let me say that again. You don't love them more than the Lord does. And here's a shocking reality check. His plan might not even include you as the person who helps them. Perhaps he knows that they won't receive help from you or they can't receive help from you for whatever reason. Whatever reason. Perhaps God doesn't actually need you in order to get his work done in them. Perhaps he has all kinds of options. So trust the Lord. Trust his love for you. Trust his love for that person that you would love to see helped. The Lord is not limited. He's able to work on your life and their life at the same time. You can write this down on your outlines. When God doesn't seem to be helping those we love as fast as we think he should, it's helpful to remember that we don't love them more than he does. We don't love them more than he does. He knows every hair on their head. He knows every day of their life. And he cares more deeply than we could imagine. Back to verse 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now when we see phrases like remembered and, and acknowledged, those things are just a literary style of ancient literature when the Torah was being assembled. God hadn't actually forgotten about Israel. This passage is just telling us that the Lord still had his eyes upon them and still had a plan to keep his promises. Even though things looked hopeless, God's plan was still on track. That's the point, and we'll see that when we get into chapter three next week. Like Moses, Jesus knew from an early age that he was different. You'll remember in Luke's gospel, we have the account of Jesus in the temple as a young man, reasoning and talking with the religious and textual experts because he knew that he was different. His parents find him and he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Like Moses, Jesus had to choose between the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. You'll remember in his temptation at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is taken up and shown the literal kingdoms of the world by Satan and offered them as a temptation. He doesn't take them. Like Moses, Jesus is full of justice and compassion, but unlike Moses, Jesus was completely, perfectly submitted to the will of his heavenly Father. He didn't snap in unrighteous anger, ever. And in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes just how complete Jesus' submission was to the will of his Father. I'll read it to you. It should be on your outlines too. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And like Moses, we have to make a choice, all of us. Will we choose to to walk in faith and, as it says, suffer affliction with the people of God? Or will we choose to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin? Do we consider even the difficulties of following Jesus in this life to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt? In other words, do we say, listen, even suffering difficulty as a Christian in this life is a greater treasure, a greater riches than the treasures of this world, the best this world has to offer? Are we like Moses looking to the reward? Are we keeping our eyes on Jesus, on heaven, on the eternal kingdom of God? Or are we just looking around from side to side at the kingdom of this world, at the circumstances around us? We've gotta make the same decision every day that Moses was faced with. He's a wonderful example of choosing the riches of heaven and the kingdom of God over the best that this world has to offer, even though it's not an easy path. And I'd encourage you to to be encouraged yourself by the fact that Moses made the decision as a young man, I'm not gonna pursue the riches of this world, I'm gonna pursue the kingdom of heaven And it's not like from that moment his life got easy. It's not like his life got easy. Because when he got off track from becoming royalty in Egypt, when he said, I don't want to become the Pharaoh, and he said, I want to belong to the kingdom of God, he got on a very different track. He got on the track to becoming a prince of heaven, a son of God. And so now instead of being prepared to become Pharaoh, to become a a prince of the world, He's now being prepared to become royalty in the kingdom of God. And that's the same thing that happens in your life and in my life. When we decide that we're going to live for the Lord, it doesn't mean things get easy. It means we're now on a different track. We're now being prepared for a destiny in heaven. You saw Moses. His life didn't get easier. He had to flee his home, everything he knew, with nothing. It's been 40 years just working a normal job, being a normal guy in the wilderness because that was part of his track to become who the Lord wanted him to be. And the Lord does the same thing in every one of our lives. If you've given your life to the Lord, then you are on a track to become who Jesus knows you need to be in eternity. And he's doing that work in your life. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian though, we say this regularly around here as well, is that none of the difficulties, none of the hardships are meaningless if you're a believer. God is doing something. The person who doesn't belong to God suffers difficulty in life for no reason, just because it's a fallen world and because life is difficult. The Christian has the promise that in every situation, God is doing something good. When we're going through difficulties, even when we mess up, God does something in that difficulty that will benefit us for eternity. He makes us more like Jesus. He causes us to trust him more so that we can be more greatly rewarded in heaven. We're all on a track that's been designed by God. So I encourage you to, like Moses, like Moses, consider even the difficulties of this life to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we thank you so much for your word and for 
the example of your servant Moses, Lord. Thank you that in the most radical way, he gave up the treasures of this world in order to be a part of your kingdom, to be identified as one of your people. And Father, we, we all desire to do the same thing and to live our lives the same way. And Father, we thank you that this is not heaven. We thank you that there's a reason for hope, that there is a day coming when everything will be made right with you at the center of all of it. And so, Lord, we, we look to that day. We look to that day. Not checking out of life or simply coasting through, but understanding that you have work for us to do here and now because you're preparing us for where we're going. And so, Lord, we count every trial as a blessing from you, knowing that you are doing something good in it and through it. Father, we thank you that we don't need everything to come together perfectly in this life because everything is gonna come together perfectly around you. That's where we wanna be. That's where our heart is. That's where our focus is. So Jesus, keep our eyes on our real home, heaven in your presence, Lord. Then I pray for, for any of us here who are just maybe dealing with discouragement over things in life that are not coming together dealing with discouragement because we, we see a situation that we can't seem to help with. Father, would you just fill us with fresh faith? Help us to remember that you love everyone a billion times more than we do. Even the person we love the most, you love them infinitely more. You care about them infinitely more. And you have so much greater insight, perfect insight than we do, Lord. You have unlimited power and unlimited resources and you are working the best plan possible for every person's life. The plan that will make them most like you as is possible in this life. Thank you that you're working in them and you're working in us through our resistance, through our stubbornness, through our foolishness, through our, our pride. You're working through all of those things, something good. And so, Lord, we just welcome your work in our lives. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.